We're going to be in Matthew 1, but not in the beginning. So, where we're going to start is Isaiah chapter 7. So, if you take your scriptures and turn to Isaiah chapter 7, we're actually going to look at a number of passages. So, if I can just give you a heads up, and we're going to pray in just a second, but we're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7. We're actually going to look at chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10, and chapter 11 of Isaiah. And then we're going to also look at Matthew chapter 1 uh, because they're all interrelated in a very significant way. Let's have a word of prayer and then we can jump into the text. Lord, help us this morning as we look at your text, as we look at the prophecies of the coming Messiah and then the Messiah uh, having come and then the ultimate conclusion of uh, the Messiah coming. So Lord, I pray you will glorify yourself this morning as we consider these texts and that we will uh, see how they all fit together and the result will be we will be filled with rejoicing and praise and honor and love because of the one who first loved us. So glorify yourself this morning. In your name I pray, amen. Obviously, if we're going to look at that amount of a group of texts, there's no way that we can really tear them all apart and break them down. So we are going to peruse the text. We're going to do a survey of the texts that we mentioned. And then we're going to, I'm going to try to hop on some really important uh, parts of each chapter and identify them for you. And hopefully it'll just serve like a, uh, a priming of the pump so that as you consider during this Christmas season, the Christmas story, uh, this will give hopefully at least at some level an overview of the completeness of the story. Because one of our problems with the Christmas story is we tend to isolate it, don't we? We tend to just isolate the Christmas story to a manger in Bethlehem or outside of Bethlehem, don't we? We tend to isolate it just to a baby. Uh, we tend to isolate it to a baby born of a virgin. We tend to isolate it to um, away in a manger. You can use whatever terms you want to. You get the idea. But I think oftentimes we miss the great and grand sweep of the storyline. And it's easy that in our age as Christians to merely say, well, yeah, the whole story is he came to what? To save the world, to die, right? And to pay the penalty for sin. And that's true. It's absolutely true. But when we, when we, when we leave it there, we miss an important part of the Christmas story. And one of the important parts of the Christmas story is the prophecies as well. Because that's what makes the whole story really stunning, doesn't it? And it brings a whole lot of clarity and power to the story when we see that for hundreds and, yea, thousands of years, if I'm using that Old Testament, old, old uh, King's English term, yea, for thousands of years, there's no question that the, that the Old Testament just drips with the prophecies of the coming Messiah, doesn't it? All the way back till when? When was the first time it was prophesied? Genesis chapter 3. No, we're going to go there, but it's there. It's kind of veiled, but it's there. We're going to start this morning in Isaiah chapter 7. Let me give you a little bit of background because for sake of time, I'm not going to read verses 1 through 9. But the, the king of Judah, his name is Ahaz. Ahaz is part of the line of David. He is a king. He's, he is a correct heir of David, a correct king. However, his problem is we discover very quickly that Ahaz is not a godly king. He really isn't all that interested in anything godly at all. He's interested in his own skin, his own neck as it were. 
And he's always thinking about how to save himself or what he can do to be able to save the kingdom. Um, and the problem arises in that uh, Syria and, uh, and Israel, Ephraim specifically, the remnant of, uh, or the part of Israel, the ten, uh, the ten northern tribes, part of them, Ephraim, have joined hands or joined in armies. They've, they've established an agreement. And the agreement was to go to war against Judah because they thought they could beat Judah. So you've got brothers, Ephraim, coming to war against Judah, and they've asked Syria to join in. And that's the background to the story. Now, it's not complete understanding yet because in reality, they've already gone to war. And in this war, Ephraim and Syria have had a lot of, of success. They've already defeated a lot of Judah, at least north of Jerusalem. And Ahaz is really, what do you think? He's scared. He's terrified. It's in the midst of this that <clears throat> Isaiah comes to Ahaz. He speaks in the beginning. We won't look at that one at this point in time. Basically, what, what Isaiah says to, to um, Ahaz in the beginning is, don't be afraid. And explains why he shouldn't be afraid. Verse 10, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I, w or Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day of Ephraim, uh, that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the cities and the clefts, in the clefts of the rock, the rocks, and on the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that uh, is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and hair and of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns with bow and arrows. A man will come there for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for the, all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. It's an interesting text. <clears throat> if we jump back to the beginning, you'll find in verse 10 that 
Isaiah says to, uh, to Ahaz, the Lord speaks through Isaiah, ask the sign for ask a sign of the Lord your God. In other words, Ahaz, ask God to give you a sign. Ahaz responds interestingly. Uh, and by the way, it says, God, uh, let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Doesn't matter. No boundaries too far. Ask whatever you want as a sign of regarding what? Well, regarding the statement in 7 through 9 that God says, in this case, uh, these people coming against you, won't, won't, they won't ultimately stand. Um, and Ahaz responds interesting it says I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test it's an interesting response God said through Isaiah ask for a sign and he says no now there's two possible reasons why he says no the text doesn't tell us why he says no but it's most likely one of two things either he has such high honor of God that he doesn't want to call for a sign, or he doesn't trust God. What do you think it is? He doesn't trust God. He won't trust the signs. And so God says to him through Isaiah, verse 13, And he said, Hear then, O house of, of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary, uh, that you weary my God also? Like, you don't trust him. You're not leaning on him. You're not even cooperating with him. You're not submitting to him. You're in absolute rebellion. Verse 14, then he goes on and says, Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. In other words, you don't want a sign? He's going to give you a sign anyway. You don't want one? You refuse to ask for a sign? I'm going to give you the an amazing sign. I'm going to give you a sign. And the sign is, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then he goes on and, and describes that scenario uh, further and down to the point where it says in verse 16, For before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. And by the way, that's, uh, keep that thought in mind. The promise here, the sign is given to Ahaz is an interesting sign. Again, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Verse 14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. We know what Emmanuel means. It means God with us. In this case, Isaiah says God's going to give you a sign. There's going to be a baby born of a virgin. His name shall be Emmanuel. And it's, it goes on and says before he is even able, before this child is even able to know how to refuse evil and good, the land whose two kings you dread, that is Ephraim and Syria, will be destroyed. It will be deserted. It's an interesting statement. Now, what gets interesting is you have to recognize from Tom's reading, right? This morning, Matthew, 20, Matthew chapter 1. What, 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 what verse showed up in that reading? What we just read, right? About Emmanuel. A virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, right? You see that? 
in Matthew, or Matthew chapter 1. Here's what's interesting. It's really important we get this. Prophecies in the Old Testament are complicated things. They are. I'll just be straight up with you. They're complicated things. And oftentimes you're going to find in Old Testament prophecy what has been described in a variety of ways. I describe it this way. As a near and far prophecy. That is the fulfillment of the prophecy. You'll oftentimes find a near and far prophecy. Or fulfillment of the prophecy. Or to put it this way, you could say it a different way. You could say you have a near prophecy that's not a perfect prophecy. Or fulfillment, I mean. A near prophecy, but it's not a perfect prophecy. And then you have a far prophecy that's a perfect prophecy. Or fulfillment, I mean. So near, imperfect, far, perfect. It's almost like the near, imperfect, oftentimes is a shadow of the far one, which is perfect. Does that make sense? You find that repeatedly through the Old Testament. Many, for example, of the prophecies of the coming Messiah reference the lineage of David, right? And oftentimes, the lineage of David prophecies mention about, for example, David is told that his, his, um, his lineage will be forever and will build a temple, for example. Well, does Solomon build a temple? Well, yeah. Does Solomon's rule last forever? No. Near and far. It ultimately is focused on Christ. Now that becomes really interesting in this text because there is a near prophecy for this text that we're looking at here. I want you to notice something. And sometimes people look at this, at what I'm about to say, and say, well, that's a really liberal perspective, Steve. And I just want to help us understand that it's not. Okay, ready? Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. That's the text, right? In your English, all your English translations give you that. That's a correct translation. But it is not the only understanding of the word for virgin. The word virgin in the Old Testament Hebrew can mean Virgin, it also can mean young woman. It can mean both. Does that make sense? It can mean both. So, if you slow down for a second and look at it and say, Behold, the, a, a young, or the young woman shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, it solves a very major dilemma to the text. Because if you think about it, if, if this is only speaking about Jesus, just the far prophecy, fulfillment far, 600 years later, if it's only talking about that, then we have a real problem because of what it says will happen before he reaches the ability to understand how to refuse evil and choose good. Which happens pretty quickly, doesn't it? When you have a child, they figure it out pretty quickly. They don't like it. They want to embrace evil, right? But they figure out pretty quickly how to refuse evil and choose good. Don't they? Of course they do. But it, the prophecy is, if it's only about Jesus, now obviously it is about Jesus. Ultimately, it clearly is about Jesus. 
But if it's only about Jesus, we have a little problem because of the statement in, in the, within the prophecy we just read. But the answer is found in chapter 8. In chapter 8, it says, starting in verse 1, Then the Lord said to me, Take a large tablet and write on it in common characters belonging to... Me- I, hate how- I hate trying to pronounce this one because I always struggle with it, but please bear with me. Meher Shalal Hazbaz, Hazbaz, and I will get reliable witnesses, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of... Uh, yeah, him too to attest for me. And I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, and there it is again, for, be, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Syria. I mean, I'm sorry, of Assyria. The Lord spoke to me again, because this people has refused the water of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Romalia. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, uh, and many the kings of Assyria and all his, the king of Assyria and all his glory, and it will rise over all its channel and goes over all its banks, and it will sweep on into Judah, and it will overflow and pass on, reaching even the neck, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of, breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear to all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand for what? God is with us. Does that sound familiar? Sound familiar? God is with us is what again? Emmanuel. Very good. So what do we have here? Well, we have in chapter 8, verse 3, and I went to the prophetess, which was his wife, and, it, and it's referring, sec, referencing sexual relations. And she conceived and bore a son. This is the near fulfillment of the prophecy that we saw in chapter 7, verse 14. And you'll notice as you work your way through, what, what happens? They give him this name, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it again, which means quick to the prey, quick to the, um, to the bounty. It's a, it actually is a term that was used by Israeli soldiers, Israelite soldiers, as they went to war. They cheered each other on with these terms. And so they, he gives, he gives um, uh, Isaiah's son this name. And then it goes on, um, repeats, uh, repeats chapter 7, before it changes it call his name that and then before verse four for before the boy knows how to cry my father or my mother which is another way of putting before he figures out how to do how to do good and avoid evil the spoil of damascus and the spoil of samaria will be carried away before the king of assyria the lord spoke to me again because his people has refused the waters of shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over resin and the sons of ramalia Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing against them the waters of the, of the river, mighty and strong, 
and mighty and many, the, the king of Assyria in all his glory, and it will rise over all its channels. And basically what it's saying is it's going to overwhelm not just um, Ephraim and, and Syria, it's also going to sweep on into Judah and overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck of Judah, referring to Jerusalem, and its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. What? Oh, Emmanuel. In other words, what this is, is Isaiah speak, God through Isaiah speaking to his infant child, or his child, probably not an infant anymore, his child with this weird name. And then the name he called, that God calls him, however, is what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now it's interesting as we work our way through the text, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna catch something very interesting here in just a second. You notice verse nine and ten. Let me just ask you a quick question. When we read through nine and ten, and you read through it as well, did nine and ten come across as a really encouraging verse set of verses? Is there anything encouraging in those two verses at all? No. How does the two verses end again? For God is with us, which again is what in, in Hebrew? What word? Emmanuel. Well, the, Isaiah's child is called Emmanuel by God in chapter 8. He wraps up 9 and 10 with God is with us, and verse 9 and 10 is pretty ugly, isn't it? And it's not just eight, 9 and 10 that's ugly, is it? But also verse 8 is pretty ugly too, isn't it? Isn't it? Talking about Assyria. What's Assyria going to do? It's going to fulfill, Assyria is going to fulfill God's promise in chapter 7. His immediate promise, the immediate fulfillment is what? That something's going to happen before this baby reaches the point of being able to know the difference between good and evil, right? In verse 8, in chapter 8, I'm sorry, and before he's able to say mother and father, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is Ephraim and Syria are going to be what? Destroyed and wiped out and deserted. Correct? And the prophecy in its completion, however, is interesting because to Ahaz, ultimately, what else is going to happen? Not only is, is, is Ephraim and, and Syria going to be wiped out by the Assyrians, but what else is going to happen? He's going to be almost wiped out as well, isn't he? All the way up to the neck. All the way, basically what he's describing is, basically, Judah is going to be all but wiped out except for, except for Jerusalem. And by the way, that did happen about a year and a half after the prophecy. Could I just pause on that for just a second? Here it is, the Christmas season. And we talk about the baby being born, right? Jesus? You see, the, the Christmas story, I would argue, has a really, really encouraging, exciting, thrilling, hope-filled message, doesn't it? Doesn't it? It also has a really dark message. It's a message we never want to talk about. But you know what chapter 7 and 8 tell us of Isaiah? 
God with us is not always a good thing. Did you hear that there? The prophecy is to Ahaz, the line of David, the king, the rightful king in the line. Judah, God's chosen people. Israel, even though they've separated, right? They're in two different kingdoms now. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. In the midst of it, God gives a prophecy about Emmanuel. God with us. Doesn't he? And yet to Ahaz and to Judah and secondarily to Israel, the ten northern tribes, is this a good message or a bad message? It's a horrifying message. It's a horrifying message. God with us is not something to be encouraged by in this text. This is not something to be thrilled with in this text in 7 and 8. This is something to be horrified by. Because in this case, God with us is not the way we think about God with us. In other words, what I'm trying to say, and we're going to tie it all together a little bit later, but God with us is not always a good thing. As in a pleasant thing. As in a blessing. Sometimes God with us is a horrifying thing in judgment. Does that make sense? It's crucial that we fold that into the package. And how often does that fold in on the Christmas story? Like never. Now, that's the near prophecy. What's interesting in Matthew, if you jump over to Matthew real quick, we're going to jump back to chapter 8 in just a second. Actually, we're going to jump to chapter 9, then 10 and 11, then back to 8. In Matthew, God, the Holy Spirit, works in Matthew to write this text, an inspired text. And in his inspired text, now in Greek, not in Hebrew, there are different words for virgin and young woman. In the Hebrew, it's the same word. In the Greek, it's different words. And it's interesting, in this text that Tom already read, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, referencing the Old Testament term, Emmanuel, God with us. He takes the text from Isaiah chapter 7, brings it up to Matthew chapter 1, and describes in verse 22, the verse before, and this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Isaiah. He doesn't say Isaiah, but it obviously is Isaiah. This text specifically and completely fulfills it. That one was a shadow. This one fits perfect. Does that make sense? And this one, God, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, has Matthew choose the more specific word, more applicable word, more accurate word, behold, the virgin shall conceive. It doesn't mean that virgin shouldn't be in Isaiah. It should because this is the ultimate fulfillment. 
Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And we know the story, right? We know the story of, of, her virgin birth, of his virgin birth, of, of him being the perfect God-man prophesied through the Old Testament, now alive on this earth. And it's really easy to say, we're not going to spend much time in Matthew chapter 1, but it's very easy to say, but now everything changes, right, Steve? Everything changes, right? Now, Emmanuel, God with us, is a good thing, right? It's worthy of praise now, isn't it? You know what the answer is? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. How do we know that? Look at John chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Referring to Jesus. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world what did not know Him. He came to His own, and more horrifying, His own what did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Just stop there for a moment. I want you to notice something. His own didn't, the world didn't receive Him. His own didn't receive Him. Correct? We saw that. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become the children of God. You know what that means? Well, that, that's true. God shows us that's correct. But here's the interesting thing about this text that I, that I want to point out. Once again, we discover what in light of what we're talking about? Not all of Emmanuel is good, is it? I mean, it's good, but it's not all good for everyone, is it? God with us. How'd that work out for most of the people in Israel? In Judah? In Jerusalem? How'd that work out? It worked out horribly, didn't it? Horrifyingly. Because what'd they do? Did they believe, did they believe in Him? No, they crucified Him. Did they believe then when He rose from the dead? No! They still rejected Him. And then Acts chapter 2. Did they all finally believe? No. A few thousand did. Out of probably millions that lived in, in, in the Middle East in, in the Israel-Judah area. Thousands did out of millions. And then what happened? God sent the gospel to who? 
the Gentiles. Didn't he? And Paul tells us that to this day, God has darkened the hearts of the Jewish people so that they would not believe. Doesn't sound to me like Emmanuel, God with us, is always a good thing. Now it is, right? Ultimately, he glorifies himself. But the point is, we think, we get in our mind, Emmanuel, God with us, woo! Wait a second. Maybe it takes a little more reflection first. Does that make sense? Before we get to the woo, isn't that awesome? He came to be with us. Maybe we better slow up the horses and ask ourselves some pretty important questions first. Let's jump back to, to Isaiah. <clears throat> Starting in, in chapter 9, verse 1. We're continuing the storyline in the prophecies. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. This is now a prophecy about the future. About, in some cases, yet to come future. We're going to see that several times. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land beyond Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with, the joy, as with joy at the harvest. They are glad, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government, and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now out of that entire section we just read, you know the part we all know, right? Right? Where is it? Verse 6 and 7. Correct? We know six and seven really, really well. And then when you get, when you get past, to, past the statement, there will, there will be no end in verse seven, it starts fading real quickly in our knowledge, doesn't it? I want you to understand something about chapter nine, verse one through seven. There's an interesting interplay of prophecies here. You have in verses, uh, verse one through five, very much a future yet prophecy. Very much yet a future prophecy. Even today. Ultimately. But then in the middle of this, you get verse 6 and 7. And in 6 and 7, you are reminded of chapter 7, verse 14, the ultimate, now that we look backwards, the ultimate fulfillment of 
7.14, correct? For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of, and pe and of peace there will be no end. And we read that, and we've read this every Christmas, right? We hear this, this, this passage every Christmas. And oftentimes we look at the text and we miss the point of the text. The text must be taken in its context. And what feels nice and warm and fuzzy isn't warm and fuzzy. It isn't. Because what we have here, when he says in verse 6, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, referencing chapter 7, ultimate fulfillment, Matthew chapter 1, ultimate fulfillment. And he goes on in 6 and says, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. That is, what do you think that means? And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What's that? No, not suppressed. He's, it's, it's kingly terminologies. He, it's his reign. It's, it's, it's the, he's talking about the Davidic line. And we get that from cha chapter 9, verse 7. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. When it says, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, it's talking about he will be the ultimate fulfillment of the line of David prophesied. He's going to be the one that will reign forever. And that's why it says here, from this time forth and forevermore in verse 7. So think about this passage from the perspective, firstly, verse 6 and 7, of, of His kingly reign. He will reign forever. The government shall be upon His shoulders. Then, we say, then, then Isaiah says, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We need to understand these terms. Because these terms aren't what you think they mean. When we hear wonderful counselor, for example, we think what? Help me out. One who gives wide sage advice. He's going to help us with our problems. Right? That's not what it means. That's not what it means. It just isn't. It goes on and it says... Mighty God. What do you think that means? He's going to be God Himself, right? He's almighty. He's, all, he's, he's pure and simply God, right? Absolutely. But in context, it refers to some aspect of His godness, if I'm going to use the term. We're going to get to it in a second. Everlasting Father. Pre-existing, ever past, ever future. But Father gets in a little complication with Trinity, doesn't it? He's the Son, isn't He? He's not Father. He's Son. Correct? Well, this is where, where we need to understand exactly what He's referring to here. But hold the thought. I just want to point out the problem first. And then lastly, it says Prince of Peace. So, Prince of Peace. Here's the deal with all four of those statements. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All those terms are, are synonymous terms 
or all terms referencing the same thing. And all those things are His kingship. Aspects of His kingliness. Okay? And it's captured by on the throne of David and over His kingdom to establish it, to uphold it. It's all about His kingliness. And His throneliness, if I use that term. His kingdomness. I know, it's my, I made it up, Charles. It's okay. Nothing wrong with that. It's how words are always made up. Yeah, you haven't put it in. See, I don't think so here. I don't think so here. I think, I, I, I don't, not that I'm denying the Trinity, obviously, but I don't think so. I think here what he's talking about is all the aspects of his kingliness and the idea of wonderful counselor is more about the destruction in context in verses 1 through 5. The absolute conquering of all enemies. The enemy cannot thwart his wisdom, his ability, his, his planning, and everything. He, you think about a king having counselors. The counselors are there as counsels of war. Mighty God, the word mighty is there on purpose to reference what just took place in, in 1 through 5. The absolute destruction of all enemies. Everlasting Father. Father is a term in the Old Testament that oftentimes, and in the ancient Near East, oftentimes referenced the king. He's the everlasting, ultimate authority. Ultimate sovereign is the idea. And Prince of Peace, again, has that, that kingly concept to it, that, that rulership context the ultimate end of all this is going to be what? Peace. And He's the one who is what? Bringing peace. It's a peace through conquering. It's the peace through conquest. It's the peace through destruction. Does that make sense? You can't miss... 1 through 5 is talking about conquest within and through his kingdom that is going to spread everywhere. Right? It's going to conquer all. Nothing will be able to oppose it. That is who this child is. The implication of the text goes back to what we saw in chapter 8. And that is Emmanuel is not always a good term for everyone. Emmanuel is an amazing term for those who are where? In His kingdom. But Emmanuel is a horrifying thing to those who are outside His kingdom. And if you don't get it yet, notice the very last line of verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What have we said about the Lord of hosts before? It's the Lord of armies. And then you add in the zeal of the Lord of armies, you get the sense of what's going on, don't you? Kind of rings really strongly, doesn't it? The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 
He, great way to put it, he's coming and he's going to win and there is going to be no residue. That's one through five. I'm sorry? Yeah. Exactly. Great point. But this is an ultimate fulfillment, and the ultimate fulfillment will be one where the conquering will be complete. Jump over to chapter 10. Verse 20. We could get into 1 through, one through uh, 19, but we don't have time right now. Again, we're just trying to prime the pump. Verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. <clears throat> Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness, for the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with a rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. And the Lord of hosts will wield against them a whip as he struck Midian at the rock of Oreb. And his staff will be over the sea, and he will lift it as he did in Egypt. In that, and in that day, his burden will depart from your shoulders and his yoke from your neck. And the yoke will be broken because of the fat. And then it goes on from there. What is he talking about? Again, we have a near and far prophecy here. The near is that Assyria will be destroyed. But the far goes back to what we saw in, ver in, in, in the previous chapter, doesn't it? The far is that his kingdom will be forever. And it will spread how far? Everywhere. And the reign will be absolute and complete. And he says here in chapter, nine, chapter 10, verse 20 and following, that how many will return? Remnant. Now I want to pause this for a second. Tom and I had a really good conversation last Sunday after church. Clearly, the remnant being referenced here, again, clearly and literally, is the remnant of Israel, right? The remnant of God's chosen people. We know also that in the New Testament that it talks about the Christian church being what? Spiritual Israel. Tom and I were talking after church and, and we were in agreement on this. I think it's really clear. I, again, I'm not sure exactly how it all works out. I'm not, I'm not one who is getting too awfully dogmatic on things, but I, on these type of things. But it seems to me as I look at the scriptures that there is a future for ethnic Israel as well as the church grafted into the vine. There's no question in my mind that there is a future for Israel and a future. And I would argue this remnant being referenced, because remnant shows up elsewhere in the New Testament as well, that the remnant includes both physical Israel as well as spiritual Israel, the church. But a remnant will return. That's what it says, doesn't it? A remnant will return. Now when we read this passage, it's thrilling and exciting, isn't it? 
but is it? It is, but is it? Because a remnant is a really small portion. Or however many percent. Yeah, it's, it is both a, a, an exciting and thrilling and encouraging and hope-filled message, but it's also what? A horrifying message. Emmanuel with us involves Jesus Christ, our lover and the lover of our souls, right? Who gave himself up for us, correct? But it also includes the Lord of hosts, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. And so it, it includes both the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and it includes the, the leader of the armies of God. So it is both a thrilling, hope-laden message and a horrifying message at the same time. Because there will be a remnant. But that means there's going to be a vast, vast group that will not be there. Which takes us over to chapter 11. <clears throat> chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. And the wisdom, and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. <clears throat> he shall not judge by what his eyes sees, his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide the equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You get once again that idea of judgment, don't you, is there? It's interesting. In all these statements in the Old Testament prophecies, there's a whole huge amount of judgment in the midst of it all, isn't there? All the prophecies about the coming Messiah. But what notice in, in chapter 11, it says there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his root shall bear fruit. What is he talking about? Well, Ahaz is a train wreck, isn't he? He's an absolute train wreck. And not only was Ahaz, but the vast majority of the kings of Israel and Judah were what? rebellious, non-God-fearing people. And then, after the Babylonian captivity, the line of David had ended. Didn't it? It was done. There were no kings. All there was was a stump a reminder of what once was. A rotting stump. If you've been out in the woods at all, you know that a lot of stumps will yield, yield uh, shoots. The American chestnut classic. But all it was is just a rotting stump. What does that signify? Hopelessness. Death. Destruction. End of hope. But wait, there's a prophecy. Isn't there? 
There's a prophecy. The line of David, the kingly throne of David will go on forever. And Isaiah in chapter 11, verse 1 says, listen, I know there's only a stump. Even with Ahaz alive, it's just a stump. A rotting, useless stump. But the prophecy is, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of David, I'm sorry, of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. And then it goes on from there, talking about another prophecy of Jesus and his kingly, kingly reign and all that we've seen and more so far. That's exactly what he talks about. He's going to judge. He's going to rule forever. And I don't know about you, but when I read these texts, one of the things that comes to my mind right away is Matthew 28. All authority or all power has been given unto me. And then he tells us to go make disciples, right? And then the next verse says what? And I will be with you to the end of the ages forever, right? That's what I mean. I'll be with you forever. And eventually he's going to come back and take us onto himself so that where he is, so we will be also. Sounds like his reign will last forever. That's what's going to come out of the stump. Could I submit to you? That's what has come out of the stump. It has come out of the stump. And he is reigning. So what do we do with this? This Christmas season, and if it wasn't the Christmas, what do we do with all this? Well, <clears throat> chapter 8, what should we do with all this? Verse 11, For the Lord God spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Lord of armies, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inheritance, inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding His face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in Him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. <clears throat> and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living to the teaching and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, 
distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into thick darkness. Again, do you sense the horror in this whole thing about Emmanuel with us? But in the midst of it all, you see that the, the prophecy of coming Messiah is it's full of hope to those who are, who are truly His children, to those who are truly His remnant. Aren't they? Isn't He the, the true hope, the only hope? Yes! But to the vast majority, it is nothing but thick darkness and difficulty and judgment and horror. And the Scriptures tell us elsewhere for eternity. What's the answer? The answer is found in chapter 8 again. Verse 12, do not walk in this conspiracy of all the people. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. And He will become what? A sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants. You, you, you sense the shift there? He will be a what? You catch it? First, he's going to be what? A sanctuary and a stone of offense. He's going to be both. You've got the hope, the sure hope, and you've got the judgment and horror. Don't you? The sanctuary is for who? The remnant. Not just His people. Because remember what He says in the Scripture? Paul says it. Not all Israel is Israel. But He will always preserve a faithful remnant. The remnant here is the one that finds Him to be the sanctuary. Well, what is the identity here of the remnant? The remnant are people who find themselves doing what? Not calling the conspiracy that these people call conspiracy and not fearing what they fear or dread, but instead they honor Him as holy and they fear Him. That's what it says. Doesn't it? That's what it says. They are people who, verse 16, bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. The picture is one of being, if I may quote from Psalms, they are people who are doing what? Meditating on the law of the Lord, right? They are people who wait for the Lord, even though currently He's what? Hiding His face. That's what it says, verse 16, or se I'm sorry, 17. And they continue to hope in Him. They are people who, instead of crying out to, in this, in this context, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Instead, what do they cry out? What do they cry out? Verse 20. To the, they cry out to the teaching and to the testimony. And they're evaluating everything according to that. You, t you get that there? If they speak not according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. Why would the remnant ever to look to those who have no dawn? Does that make sense? 
Who are these people? They're people who fear God. Who even dread. They honor Him as holy. They bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. They wait for the Lord. They hope in Him. They're consumed with the, with the teaching, the testimony. And they evaluate everything according to the testimony. Where do they find themselves as a result? Not tripping over Christ, do they? They're not stumbling over Christ, are they? Over the son that the virgin conceived. Instead, they find him to be what? Sanctuary. They're in the shelter of his wings. Kind of a constant theme in the scriptures, isn't it? And even that is done by who? By God, by the Holy Spirit at work within. During the Christmas season, we discover in the Christmas story the only hope we have is Emmanuel. God with us. Isn't that right? The only hope we have is Emmanuel. God with us. And yet, during the Christmas season especially, you know what you and I ought to be doing? If we are the people who fear God, who keep His Word, who love His Word, who defend His Word, if we are people who are in His sanctuary, you know what the text really is telling us? We need to recognize something. You know what you need to recognize? God is with us. And in Him is hope. At the same time, we need to recognize that God with us is a declaration of horror for the world. It's one, Christmas season to me is really weird for that reason. You go to the mall and what do you hear? All the time at the mall, what do you hear? Christmas carols. Christmas songs. Now, a lot of them are secular. You know, I don't want much for Christmas. All I want is you, which, by the way, is a weird song. Um, <coughs> you're not much. That's what that means. Yeah. <coughs> but in the midst of all those weird songs and cutesy little kids songs, they still play some Christmas carols, don't they? Some religious ones, some Christian ones. You know what I think of when I hear those Christmas carols being played, those Christian ones? think horror. I think judgment. I think Lord of hosts. I must think that. I have to think that. When I hear unsaved people singing joy to the world, the Lord has come. Are you kidding me? You're singing about judgment. Do you realize that? There is no joy for you. Because Jesus is still a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He is not your sanctuary. Do you get an idea that Christmas, as we celebrate Christ's birth, ought to really be a time of, as Paul describes it, rejoicing and grieving? 
rejoicing because you know something? You and I don't deserve the, what we've got, do we? We don't deserve the sanctuary, do we? You know what we deserve? The Lord of hosts to bring wrath. And yet he has been merciful to us if we're believers. He's been merciful. My goodness, do we have a lot to rejoice for over, don't we? To praise over. To be thrilled about. To long for the final fulfillment, right? At the same time, we have much to grieve over. Do we not? There are people who are so deceived. They're so deceived that they'll sing joy in the midst of horror. Do people ever do that? Uh-huh. Remember the story in the Old Testament? People crying, peace, peace, but they're what? There was no peace. They're crying out, peace, peace, in the midst of the warriors moving towards them, thinking if they just chant, peace, that perhaps there would be, but there wasn't. And history records that the same exact thing happened in 70 A.D. when the Roman soldiers were moving on Jerusalem, destroying Jerusalem, and the people, the remnant of people that were still in Jerusalem, gathered around the temple, and they just stood around the temple chanting, to the temple, to the temple, because they were certainly convinced that God would not let his temple be destroyed. They were banking on peace, and all they got was judgment. Why? Why? Because they weren't in the sanctuary. And I'm not talking about the physical temple. They weren't in the sanctuary of Jesus. And they were destroyed. Great rejoicing. Great grieving. Emmanuel, God with us. The king has come, hasn't he? Amen? Did you pick up in the one text we read that he is yet to come? There's a time of destruction coming, a time of severe judgment, and at that point in time, all that will remain is his remnant, and all else will be gone. That is the story of Christmas. I read somewhere that Last time Jesus came as a child, next time he comes as a lion. And it's really true. And when he comes, destruction will be complete. And it won't matter if people believe it or not. Because it certainly didn't matter in Noah's day, did it? And how many survived the flood? How many, Charles? Eight? I knew you'd know. Eight. Remnant, right? Remnant. Rejoice. Grieve. Search our hearts. Are we part of the remnant? If so, Emmanuel with us, what a great story. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us.
This is a great time to be a believer and to worship and to revel in the truth. But I pray, Lord, you will help us at the same time that we revel in the reality that you have come, that you have conquered. <clears throat> You've conquered sin and Satan and death. Help us to always remember that yet there is only a remnant, a faithful remnant, and they're only faithful because of your spirit at work in them. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us to rejoice, but at the same time help us to grieve as we recognize that there is a lost and dying world. There is a people, vast swath of people, who will stumble over you and be destroyed. Help us to recognize your mercy. Help us to grieve for those who have yet heard and believed. And help us to proclaim you, to glory in you, to fear you, to trust you, to set you apart as holy, to love your word, to trumpet your word, to follow you. In your name I pray. Amen.